I'm Jeff Williams from Brooklyn, New York. I'm Matt from Cambridge. The Sound of Young America is an independent production supported by listeners like me. If you'd like to support the show like I did, visit MaximumFun.org and click on Donate. I'm Jesse Thorne. Live on tape from my house in Los Angeles, it's The Sound of Young America from MaximumFun.org and PRI, Public Radio International. In the United States, most people know the sci-fi series Doctor Who for its hokey special effects. If they're not a Doctor Who aficionado, they may only have seen reruns of the show that ran on PBS stations in the 1980s. In the UK, though, Doctor Who is a cultural force to be reckoned with. The Doctor is an icon of sci-fi who sold over 3 million DVDs and 7 million action figures. The first run of the show lasted more than 25 years, from 1963 to 1989. The time-traveling Doctor was then resurrected in 2005 by the BBC for an exceptionally well-received four-year run with writer Russell Davies at the helm and actor David Tennant as the Doctor. Now my guest, Stephen Moffat, one of the world's uh, best-regarded television writers, is heading up the fifth season. Um, Since the 1960s, the Doctor has been played by 11 men. He changes form from time to time. I'm also joined by the newest actor to play the Doctor, Matt Smith, and the Doctor's new companion, Karen Gillan. The newest incarnation of the iconic character is already hit a hit in the UK, and it's just made its debut on BBC America. In this clip from the first episode of Season 5 of Doctor Who, the time-traveling Doctor, played by my guest Matt Smith, is handcuffed by Karen Gillan's character. The Doctor doesn't yet know that this woman is Amy Pond, his future traveling companion, but also the adult version of a little girl he inadvertently left behind 12 years in the past. 12 years that, from the Doctor's perspective, have only been a few moments. Well, that's much better. See how this works? But what are you doing here? Where's Amelia? Amelia Pond? Yeah. Amelia, little Scottish girl. Where is she? I promised for five minutes, but the engines were phasing. I suppose I must have gone a bit far. Has something happened to her? Amelia Pond hasn't lived here in a long time. How long? Six months. No! 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 No, I can't be six months late. I said five minutes. I promised. What happened to her? What happened to Amelia Pond? Sergeant, it's me again. Hurry it up. This guy knows something about Amelia Pond. Stephen Moffat, Matt Smith, Karen Gillan, welcome to The Sound of Young America. Hello! Hello! Hello. Um, Stephen, I, I want to start with you. Um, uh, uh, of the three of you, you're the only one who's uh, old enough to remember the very first incarnation of Doctor Who. Um, were, were you a fan of it as a kid? Oh, I was a, a huge fan of Doctor Who. I think I, I think I was about fifty-eight when William Hartnell started because I'm that old. <laughs> no, um, it was uh, yeah, no, I was huge. It was uh, I think for a certain period of my life starting from when I was about eight uh, till about now, I thought of nothing else. Um, uh, no, I was massive. It was what got me into writing. It's what made me interested in television, quite honestly, imagining how they could possibly make something as wonderful as Doctor Who. You actually wrote uh, Doctor Who uh, fiction and a Doctor Who parody before you wrote actual Doctor Who episodes, right? That's right. I uh, did the, the Curse of Fatal Death with uh, Rowan Atkinson and, uh, and Hugh Grant and Richard E. Grant and Jim Broadbent and Jonathan Price and Julius Walha and uh, I've forgotten someone and Joanna Lumley, uh, uh, which we did for Comet Relief in uh, 1999. 
Richard Curtis asked me to write that. Um, what did you love about Doctor Who as a kid? It was just so much more exciting than anything else that was on. I mean, that was back, you know, it was back in the 60s and 70s when the only competition for the television was, of course, was a three-bar electric fire. And just the, I used to visit people who had central heating. It was that exciting. But the idea that, you know, when television was basically so dull, you had this program that, uh, about a man who could go absolutely anywhere... You know, I mean, and, and lived in a magic box and, and was, a, was a grown-up who behaved like a child. It was just the most seductive, fascinating thing compared to really anything else that was on. Uh, Matt, Karen, how did, uh, how did the two, how were the two of you introduced to Doctor Who? Well, uh, uh, um, at risk of repeating myself amongst friends, kind of... We were part of the barren age that it wasn't on the television. It, it, it was kind of taken off from, I think, was it 89, Stephen, or something like that? It was around Yes, there, 89, yeah, yeah. And, uh, and um, so I didn't really have it as a kid, but you're aware of it because it's sort of ingrained in your blood somehow. It's passed down generationally uh, in the UK. Um, but then obviously it came back in, it, in its kind of reincarnation, as it were, and I didn't watch it then either. Um, but then I got the role, and I watched all of it, and I, I, I watched all of David's stuff and all of Chris's, and I went back and checked out uh, some Tom Baker and uh, some Pertwee and some Patrick Troughton, who, who uh, I loved. And, um, you know, it's like any great box set. It hooks you in. You get swept up in the world of it and the mythology of it. And, and just the Doctor as a character, as a central character, I think there's always... You know, you're just always interested in this sort of mad buffoony boffin who sort of rocks on and saves the day accidentally, you know. How about for you, Karen? Well, yeah. Um, I mean, again, I it wasn't on television while I was growing up, so I wasn't that familiar with it. Um, but then I did watch a lot of it when it came back in 2005 um, because my mother is a massive fan, so I watched a lot of it through her. But... Um, but only only since I got the role have I sort of <clears throat> really sort of become involved in the world and um and yeah that that's the thing with sci-fi isn't it you get sucked in and then and then you're part of it and it's exciting. Is Stephen maybe you could give um uh, uh our American listeners a little bit of perspective on um what the 2005 uh uh new version of Doctor Who meant in in the context of this you know then by then already you know 30 35 year history of uh of this character well the extraordinary thing was that when doctor who was announced as coming back in uh, and that was announced in 2003 in fact it was headline news the show hadn't been on the air for about 15 16 years and it was headline news when the bbc finally gave in and said we're going to bring doctor who back because people have been nagging about it for years and it was everywhere Without any real effort on the part of the production team at that time, although they made many efforts, but I mean, the, it was it, it was all over the press. There was instant speculation: of who was going to be the new Doctor, who was going to be the new companion. Every single thing they did became news. And um, that, I mean, as Matt says, this show is uh, is sort of part of the DNA of Britain. Kids have never seen it, know all about it. Uh, and I remember once, uh, just when Doctor Who had just started again, and I said. Uh, to my, my my son, who was about five at the time, uh, five or six, I said, oh, uh, um, and there's Christopher Eccleston as Doctor Who. And he said to me, I just turned and said, he's not called Doctor Who, he's called the Doctor. <laughs> thought, my goodness, how does he know that already? <laughs> so it is, uh, I think it's genetically part of us. If you're British, you just know it. Karen said the other day, you're born knowing about it. You do. So it was huge. It was a massive thing. You, by the time that um, uh, the new version of Doctor Who was... Uh, was created, you were a very successful uh, television writer in Britain. 
um, uh, you created a show called Coupling that was, uh, uh, you know, one of the most uh, successful comedies in England of, of, of the last uh, 10 or 15 years. Um, how did you insinuate yourself into uh, the Doctor Who world, and, and why did you insinuate yourself into that world? Insinuate myself? It sounds, it sounds rather <laughs> devious, doesn't it? I, I snuck into the back of the room and started fondling people randomly. Um, no, I, uh, I, do you know, it was as simple as I, I heard that Russell had got, I was actually in New York at the time, I heard that Russell had got the, the job of bringing it back, and, and principally I was just excited that Doctor Who was going to come back, and I thought, well, you know, it's worth the punt, so I, uh, I emailed him and, uh, and congratulated him. I didn't do anything egregious or indeed in, insinuating. Uh, uh, like ask for a job but, uh, but he emailed back very quickly and said look if, if it goes to more than six episodes I'd like you to write some uh, which I did obviously so that that way just that way it was uh, I, mean, I mean I think I was a reasonably good catch to do uh, some episodes of Doctor Who but uh, <laughs> I wasn't uh, I wasn't that optimistic because I'd never you know I basically was a comedy writer Did you have plans were there like things that you had always wanted Doctor Who to do that you now had the chance to make him do well, you sort of think there would be, but really, I'm always more interested in my new ideas. You know, I mean, obviously, I've been having ideas since uh, since I was eight, but you know, really, it's just the new ones that excite you. So I don't think I really have raided the back catalogue of, or you know, of all my the, the drawings I did when I was twelve and the back of my school notebook. I think it's it's the new stuff that gets you going. Matt, tell me a little bit about how um, uh, you came to audition for the role. Well, it was sort of like any other process, really. Um, <clears throat> my agent rang me up one day and said, how do you feel about auditioning for the Doctor in Doctor Who? And I sort of sheepishly went, well, you know, why the hell not? I mean, I thought nothing of it because it was such a, a big deal. Um, I guess it, it, that, that, that sort of gave me a, a, um, a false sense of courage where I, I just thought, well, you know, what the hell? So you go and you go to these sort of weird hotels because everything to do with this show is sort of a secret and even the audition process is a secret um, and so I went along and I went to these odd hotels and you get the script the night before um, and you don't have too much time to think about it which I think is always good acting you know too much thought is death really so um, you know I did my thing and and, and uh, uh, just tried to be as clear and creative with it as possible um, and you know here I am talking to you about it uh, 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 you know it's kind of bizarre my mother had a premonition that I should be the doctor though she texted me the week before or just when David announced that he was leaving saying that I should be the next doctor I, God knows why but mother's no best eh I suppose it's because she loves you well exactly exactly it's exactly that yeah yeah um <laughs> When you got your uh, when you got your sides for this audition, when they sent you the script the night before, mm-hmm. um, did you get one of those uh, sort of like one paragraph character descriptions like you usually get when you're headed out on an audition? The doctor is a dot no. dot dot. No, you still, no. I still haven't given you one of those. <laughs> well, no, but I mean, you don't need it. I mean, I I wasn't that familiar with the show, and I was given the first episode. But not for long, because obviously all these things are very secret and you had to give it back after the first audition. Um, but I remember reading it and I was just like, God, you know, this guy is amazing. Because And in the first scene, he, he sort of pops his head out of, you know, a, a, a crashed TARDIS and asks for a piece of fruit. And, and uh, it, you know, it, it, it's... I mean, I was just struck, really, thunderstruck, and thought, this is one of the best things I've ever read. And certainly one of the best things I've read in the past six months because you get so much as an actor that's sent to you 
and there is you know it was really interesting not being familiar with the show and and just reading it as a script and that was my first contact really I want to ask you, uh, uh, Stephen, about the other lead character of this show, the character of Amy, who's um, played by Karen. Um, doctor, the doctor is is uh, is an alien, and he looks like a looks like a human being, but it doesn't always quite behave like one. And the character of the companion over these many years has been the the main human character in the show. Um, it's also been played by you know more actresses than uh, uh, even the doctor. It's something like twenty five or thirty. Um, what did you think? What opportunities does having this person tagging along uh, give you as a writer uh, above and beyond just you know being able to uh, externalize internal monologues? Well, first of all, and really right, I never think of it as you know, like that. This is the twenty-fifth person to play the companion because that's not that's not a par. Um, uh, and second of all, she's not tagging along. Uh, the the critical thing about Amy is, and this is always true of Doctor. It's a sort of strange thing. The Doctor may well be the hero of Doctor, of course he is. But Amy's the main character. It's about her. It's about her journey. It will change her life forever when she goes on board that TARDIS. And it's about what happens to her. In a way, the Doctor is the Doctor. And he changes his face and changes things happen to him. But he's, he's, he, I mean, he's kind of used to this. It's the, so the, the way to get Doctor Who right is to make, uh, is, is not, never, ever, and I, and I sort of don't allow it in the script, refer to her as the companion. A rather Victorian phrase, actually, isn't it? It's his, it's his friend. And, uh, and it is through, it, it is her adventure. It's what changes for her. And she becomes a, she's a different person by the end. So it's her story, absolutely the story of Amy on board the TARDIS, Amy and Amy and the Time Lord. Production of The Sound of Young America is supported in part by Ask Metafilter. Thousands of life's little questions answered online at ask.metafilter.com. And by Humber College, offering a two-year diploma program dedicated to comedy. Students learn stand-up, improv, acting, and writing skills and perform in the heart of Toronto. At Humber, we make funny people funnier. More information at HumberComedy.com. Hey, it's me, Jesse. May 13th marks the start of the fourth annual Maximum Fun Drive. 50 weeks out of the year, we give you everything we make for free. In two weeks out of the year, we ask you to pay for what you enjoy. This year, you'll have the chance to get amazing thank you gifts, including an all-new DVD of The Sound of Young America in New York City and some of the best of our interviews from Sundance and South by Southwest, plus exclusive content from Jordan Jesse Go. We're capping the drive off with a live Jordan Jesse Go extravaganza, both online and in person, on May 28th. The show starts at 4 p.m. Pacific on the 28th and lasts all the way till midnight. That's eight hours with more than a dozen of your favorite Jordan, Jesse Go and The Sound of Young America guests stopping by. Mark your calendars now for Friday, May 28th, and the Maximum Fun Drive starting on May 13th. It's The Sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guests are Matt Smith and Karen Gillan, the stars of the BBC's most recent incarnation of its legendary science fiction series, Doctor Who. My other guest, Stephen Moffat, is one of the show's writers and its executive producer. In this clip, Karen Gillan's character, Amy, is stepping onto Doctor Who's large, time-traveling spaceship as the phone rings. People phone you? Well, it's a phone box. Would you mind? 
Hello? Sorry, who? No, seriously, who? Says he's Prime Minister. First the Queen, now the Prime Minister. Get about it, don't you? Which Prime Minister? Um, uh, uh, which Prime Minister? The British one. Which British one? Which British one? Winston Churchill, before you. Oh, hello, dear. What's up? Tricky situation, Doctor. Potentially very dangerous. Think I'm going to need you. Don't worry about a thing, Prime Minister. We're on our way. It becomes clear at the end of the uh, first episode, which uh, will already have aired by the time uh, uh, this airs, that um, Amy's character is uh, has decided to go on these time travels immediately before, uh, the, literally the night before she's set to be married. Um, Stephen, uh, I'll start with you. How did that setup come to you? I think the thing that always fascinates me when I was a kid and what I would imagine, I wouldn't ever actually imagine being the Doctor because the Doctor's a strange and remote creature. Um, I'd imagine what it would be like if the Doctor turned up. One of the great uh, offers he makes you is he can get you back five minutes after you left, however long you spend there. So I want to sort of highlight the fact that, you know, on the night before Amy's going to change her life and grow up and be a, a proper adult, her childhood, her imaginary friend from her childhood turns up and says, for as long as you like, you can run away with me and still come back and get married. The night before your wedding can go on forever and you can run and run and run. And that, for me, was the, the romance and the excitement. And giving her a big, old, life-changing deadline to come back for really underlined that idea that you can just have all these amazing adventures in this little bubble of time that doesn't take any time at all. Karen Gillan, can, can you relate to that... Um uh, to the idea of having that opportunity to to run and run I- immediately before something really important is set to happen. Well, no, not really, <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but no, and I can imagine it, and it's the most exciting thing to imagine in the world, you know. And I think that she's in an interesting place when we meet her, and I think that she sort of needs to do something drastic at that point, and um and and yes, yeah, she's going in a time machine machine, so she can she can come back before again. So I'm. Um, so yeah, I, I think that I think yeah, it's really interesting. Did you do what uh, Matt just told us he did, and and go back and and watch all of I- these previous incarnations of this show when you got the role? Um, well, I watched kind of all of them since it came back in two thousand and five. But I think it's it's important to remember that um, that that playing the companion you actually don't need to understand all the laws and logic because you're seeing it for the first time and that's really important to remember um you know that this is all brand new to her and she wouldn't understand it so she will ask questions and not take things for granted Stephen, uh tell me how you imagined the relationship between these two characters because that is sort of what what's at the center of the show um, well, you know that, that that relationship is is incredibly central to the story of the series. So, uh, so I'll, I'll avoid saying too much. But you know, the Doctor is uh, is is a strange man on his own. You know, he's seen so much and done so much, and he's almost uh, he's almost anaesthetized. He, he does he does need a soulmate to run away with. And the, and the thing that the thing about Amy, which uh, I mean, I'm, I'm starting to notice as I watch the series go out and the way that Karen plays Amy, is that you know she's more than feisty; she's mad. She's properly mad, <laughs> and I think what the, the doctor responds to about Amy is, 
he's, he's, um, she's as mad as he is. She's the, she's the kind of person who would absolutely think that running away in a big blue blocks and flinging yourself into insane levels of danger would be a good idea. Um, and that's uh, that's you know that's beyond feisty. That's kind of barking, and that's and that's why you love her. There's this moment in the uh, in the beginning of the second episode where she um, they're on this uh, future this spaceship that is the future version of uh, England, and she uh, pulls out a hairpin and breaks into this uh, secret place that she's not allowed to go into, just completely blithely. Um, only to discover this terrifying tentacle inside, but I was I was struck by how how prepared she was for that adventure. Yeah, well, she does say in that scene, "I never could resist a keep out" sign. Um, <laughs> you know, I think I think we see a lot of it, Amy, that she's uh, that she so automatically in a brand new place says, "Is that the most dangerous place? I'll just pop in there then, and I know how to do it." There's a, there's a wealth about her in that in in that in that little moment because that's what she's like. It's partly she's that way because the doctor happened to her when she was so young, and she's been she has been literally waiting for these adventures for 14 years. So yeah, she's ready. The the doctor has often in the past been played by um, uh, old older men who are who have sort of. Uh, uh, like a, a goofy uncle vibe to them. Um, uh, men who you would never imagine uh, would have a romantic, you, you would never think of as having a romantic relationship in the context of, you know, a television show. Um, I'm just sobbing here because I'm, I realized that the stats really are there's only one actor who's ever played the doctor who's older than me. <laughs> <laughs> um, what age are you? I'm, okay. I'm 28. Twenty-eight. There's not. There's not that many. Uh, you know, the, the doctors aren't as old as uh, as we all think they are. The, the <laughs> oldest person ever played the doctor was fifty-five. He hasn't had a grey hair on his head since nineteen seventy-four, and I'm not. <laughs> I'm not absolutely sure this ever been true. These have been played as the senior man. I think it was someone saying that the other day. You know that you know, William Hartnell was obviously you know was like the grandfather. He was the father. You look back at those episodes. The doctor's been played as a wayward child from the beginning. Mm. Seriously, he's always a wayward child. Even when he's William Hartnell, in fact, sometimes especially, uh, his companions have to sort of run around after him to stop him doing mad things. But um, it's not. It's uh, casting a younger man means nothing. I've got to tell you, he's nine hundred and seven. He we, William Hartnell was too young for this part. <laughs> it makes no difference. And by the way, Matt Smith is everybody's goofy uncle. Do you, I, but, do, but don't do you I mean am I am I crazy in in seeing that distinction between uh between the between a goofy uncle who who could be certainly younger but doesn't feel like he has romantic potential and this r- relationship between um Karen and Matt both of whom are um, you know they're they're roughly similar in age, and they're both, uh, if you'll forgive me, guys, very good looking. Well, I forgive you. I can forgive that. <laughs> are you, you going to say anything about me now? <laughs> I'm just being a little left out. <laughs> I think his executive producers go, "I'm gorgeous." I agree. I, I concur. <laughs> yeah, um, are, are you crazy in seeing that as a new thing? Well, do you know, I mean, there's, there, there's been a subtext in the show for a long time about, you know, about what goes on between the Doctor and the Companion. Um, you know, it's uh, Sarah Jane Smith and Tom Baker. There wasn't a huge age gap. Um, 
the John Pertwee doctor suddenly seems to be in love with Joe Grant and gets very sulky when she leaves him for someone else. I think the doctor, while he is, the, you know, he's the most gentlemanly gentleman in the universe and would uh, and always, you know, would always respect such things. But do you know, I think he's a serial faller and lover. I think he just does. I think he he loses his heart a lot. But the truth is, he's lost both his hearts to the big blue box, and none of them stand a chance. Stephen, I um, uh, I hadn't spent a lot of time with Doctor Who before I um, uh, started preparing for this interview. And in watching the first two episodes of this series um, the other day, and, and then reading a lot about its you know cultural place in the UK, I was really surprised that it was a a, a family show, a, in some in some ways a kids show. Um, uh, why were you surprised? Well, I, I, I guess I just, uh, it had not occurred to me as I watched it. Um, it didn't have any of the traditional qualities that one associates with a kid's show. It's not extraordinarily broad. Um, it, it's got, I mean, for a kid's show, it has a lot of really, uh, a lot of really fine strokes. Well, I mean, it's uh, it would be reductive just to call it a children's show. It's a show, I think, more especially as an incredibly strong relationship with children. It's never been made by the children's department. It's always been made as a as a very big sumptuous drama series. Uh, but it's a show that I mean, children have a relationship with the Doctor that is that is really quite intense and personal. Uh, you know, the and they have a creative response to Doctor Who that I think is unprecedented. They children don't just watch this the way they'd watch Hannah Montana or Wizards of Waverly Place. They actually make up their own monsters, make up their own Doctor costumes, design their own Tardises. They actually someday, in extreme, slightly psychotic cases, they grow up and start running the show. You know, it's <laughs> a, it's it's an extraordinary uh, it's an extraordinary response from the children. And in that sense, it's not it's not I don't call it a children's show because it's only for children. It certainly is not. It's for adults too, but because it sort of belongs to them. And you must always, always, always make sure that Doctor Who addresses them firmly and clearly. Not by being childish. Children don't like childish. Uh, not by being silly or daft. Children, uh, children's lives are actually very serious. Um, they, they want high drama. They want intelligent stories. And let me tell you, you talk to any 10-year-old, uh, they're as smart as you are, and, and everything's still working. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I have been accused in the past of being a little bit too outfit-centric. But uh, I, I feel like uh, in Doctor Who, I have finally have an interview subject that is nearly as outfit-centric as I am. Well, thank you. <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> um, so, uh, uh, Matt, your version of the Doctor uh, has a very distinctive outfit, a, 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 a Tweety sport coat, um, uh, suspenders, or I guess they're called braces in the UK. Yes. Yeah. Uh, we weren't going to mention the suspenders. No. <laughs> oh, God. Yes. Uh, a bow tie, which is, um, which is a choice that is, I, I, I know is specific enough because I think I got five emails about the bow tie after I mentioned that I was going to interview you guys. Really? Oh, that's interesting. Saying what? <laughs> uh, saying you've got to ask about the bow tie. Now, oh. this may have to do with the fact that from time to time I've been known to wear a bow tie. Ah, well, that, that that's that's a good vibe. Bow ties are cool. So, mm-hmm. how how and why did you choose this outfit that uh, the new Doctor wears, uh, Matt and Stephen? Well, we sat in a room in North London, and we had about three or four fittings, and we'd ended up on a on a costume a bit more like Neo from the Matrix, mixed with Jack Sparrow, and it just wasn't really sitting right, and. 
I think we all sort of felt it. Um, uh, and so th- on the next fitting, I, I brought in a set of braces and a tweed jacket. And uh, our costume designer had a think about that and went away and invented some other bits and bobs and brought in a shirt. I mean, you know, I was, I, I was always very keen that there were a set of travellery sort of boots, like Indiana Jones, you know, and, and, and that they were... I don't know. They, 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 they're kind of action hero-y to me. Um, and that's what's really good about the costume, I think. I think it has an element of the action hero and an element of the professor. But so, you know, and we had braces and a tweed jacket. And then there was something missing, and I asked to try a bow tie. And can you remember, Stephen, like, there was a degree of reluctance at the notion of a bow tie, wasn't there? There was close to armed rebellion at yeah. the idea of the bow tie. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but then it all sort of just <laughs> made sense, really. Well, it, it was extraordinary because... Um, I, I just said no when, uh, we, and we basically had that point. I think I had the uh, we had the Tweedy jacket and the, everything else was in place, and it was fine. It, well, it wasn't taking the roof up; it was fine. And then Matt wanted to try on a bow tie. He put the bow tie on, and uh, with great reluctance from the rest of us, and uh, it just worked. It yeah. just added a touch of bonkers authority. Yeah, yeah. And now, of course, you know, and kind of people often ask if I have a catchphrase in all this, because I say Geronimo a couple of times. But I really, that's not a catchphrase by any means. I just say it a couple of times. But I think if there were ever to be any sort of thing that he really does hold on to, it's the, it's the notion that bow ties are cool. Like, he really believes, that the Doctor really believes that it's cool. And, um, and that's kind of why it is, because to everyone else, it just looks a bit silly walking around in a bow tie and a tweed jacket. You know? I'm but, sorry, um, are I, maybe I'm confused, but are you saying that bow ties aren't really cool? Because oh they... no 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 no. I mean, I firmly believe that they're very cool. Oh, it's just, thank God. Yeah, yeah. It, it, but it, but it, it, in the doctor's world, you know, I mean, to Amy Pond, she just thinks he looks ridiculous. But you know, that's why they're cool because they're sort of not cool. You know, I mean, um, but you know, I think the real, the real virtue of the costume for me is I was always very keen that there was an element of the professor because I think for my doctor there is that sort of you know even the TARDIS is a mad scientist's lair you know it's the the belly of this boffin's home and um and I think that's what this costume achieves really well as an American it's uh funny to think that the you know the time lord citizens of space um are these kind of uh goofy prototypically braces wearing uh english professor goofballs well yes i mean <laughs> i guess it is interesting isn't it that this 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 mad alien uh has chosen to dress sort of relatively smartly um you know uh, in a bow tie and braces and a tweed jacket but that's sort of why the doctor's cool because you know He's a bit silly. (laughs) (laughs) Matt Smith is the 11th incarnation of the Doctor on the iconic television program Doctor Who. Uh, His companion Amy is played by Karen Gillan, and uh, Stephen Moffat is uh, the boss uh, and head writer of uh, the new show. It's running now on BBC America here in the United States. Stephen, Matt, Karen, thank you so much for taking the time to be on The Sound of Young America. It was so fun to have you. Thank Thank you you for having us. Thank you very much. That's our time for another Sound of Young America program. I've been your host, Jesse Thorne, America's radio sweetheart. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our music is provided to us by Dan Wally. The show is edited by Nick White. Our intern is Julia Smith. You can email me at jesse, J-E-S-S-E, at maximumfund.org. 
And you can visit us online at MaximumFun.org, where you will find all of our shows downloadable for free, as well as links to our free podcasts, including not just The Sound of Young America, but also our comedy shows like The Casper Hauser Comedy Podcast and Jordan Jesse Go. If you want to follow me on Twitter, you can. I'm at Young American, like The Sound of Young America, Young American. And I guess that's about all we have to say for this week. We'll see you next time right here on The Sound of Young America. <laughs>